For logbook servicing you can rely on, you need to make the right choice. You need trained professionals who are fully qualified to service your car according to manufacturer's specifications. For real peace of mind and a nationwide warranty, book in or book online at repcoservice.com. Welcome to Inspiring Stories for Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Hello, my name is Tim McMillan. Welcome to another episode of Inspiring Stories, brought to you by Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Uh, my guest in this episode uh, is someone who fell in love with the workings of the human body at a very early age. She was enthralled as a young child uh, by textbooks that explain things like uh, how the eyes give us sight and how the heart could pump blood uh, to all parts of the body. So a career in medicine seemed pretty much a foregone conclusion. And after a couple of uh, distractions through her teens, uh, she set about on the long road towards achieving her dream of becoming a surgeon. Later, more specifically, a cardiothoracic surgeon, a heart and lung surgeon. Uh, But the road to reach that point, fair to say, was pretty tough. There were brutal hours, uh, some pretty toxic uh, behaviours and attitudes at work, and the pressure of holding someone's very existence in her hands, all a lot to bear for anyone. Uh, She's also a published author and is releasing her third book. It's called Scrubbed, which is a very personal story uh, of a person trying to reach uh, the top of her profession. Dr. Nikki Stamp, thanks for your time. Thanks for being my guest on Inspiring Stories. How are you? Yes, I'm good. Thank you for having me. Lovely to be here. Yeah, it's, it's great to sit down and have a chat. And specifically about this book that you've mm-hmm. got coming out. It's a, it's a really personal account of, of your experiences, your life story, your professional mm-hmm. life particularly. Mm-hmm. Was it hard to write? It was really hard to write. Uh, and I, I do have two books under my belt already, but they are both very, um, they're not personal. They're, you know, explaining science to the layperson. So it's very distant and, and a lot easier to write. Whereas for something like this, it's very personal. It's involved um, looking back at a lot of experiences that were not great the first mm. time around and <laughs> telling them again. Um, there was a lot of uh, talking to other people, um, my friends and colleagues, about um, their experiences or shared experiences that we had. Um, so, yeah, it was really difficult and it's taken uh, over two years. It started before COVID, so it's been yeah. a long time <laughs> in the works. Great to have it finally oh, yeah. out and on the shelves, though. Yes, yes, very exciting. It's it's uh, it's always a nerve-wracking time right before a book comes out, but um, it's also quite cool to see the, the I suppose, the fruits of your labour yeah. there in black and white. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll talk about some of the contents uh, of the book uh, in more detail over the course of the hour. But let's go back to the young Nikki. Mum <laughs> um, was a flight attendant. Yes. Dad, an engineer. Yes. You had no great history, uh, lineage through the family of, of people in the medical profession. No. And yet you developed this great fascination with the body uh, at such a young age. Where does that come from? Honestly, I have no idea. Um, because as you say, I didn't really have that contact with, with healthcare professionals. Um, I think a lot of my friends I went through med school with had parents who were doctors um, or nurses and, and they kind of, you know, grew up with that, uh, that desire, that need to be in healthcare and all of, the, all of the things that that entails. But yeah, for me, I think it was more, uh, I just somehow found my way to the way the human body works uh, was what really attracted me in the first place. Uh, and I just could not get enough, even as a kid, of reading all of those things. Um, I loved the science of it. 
Uh, so yeah, it was it was always about the fascination with with what you could do uh, to to fix the human body, how it worked, how it was put together, rather than I think like I say, a lot of my friends and colleagues who have medical families, it was more about service um, and uh, emulating those wonderful role models that they had who go to work and save people's lives. Um, I was just I was just in love with the subject matter. And just soaking up all the knowledge yeah, that little, you could. Yeah. Do, you have a, do you have a photographic memory or an incredibly good memory? I do have a really memory. good memory, yeah. 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 It can make, it make me a bit difficult to argue with. Um, I won't try that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I do. Um, and I think that's really helpful because a lot of medicine is just recalling, you know, sheer volume of information. Yeah. Um, you know, like uh, when I was a, a junior doctor, we have to do surgical exams uh, and you are expected to know every minute detail of the anatomy of the human body. Um, all of the bones and ligaments and tendons and blood vessels and nerves and the foot and the hand, the head, all of that. Mm. And you just need to be able to, to just know reel that. them off. Yeah. 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 Um, I suppose uh, for a lot of kids, you know, it's one of those things you go through uh, as a kid, but also well, at all stages of your life, seeing a loved one, mm-hmm. um, struggle mm-hmm. with their health, mm-hmm. um, was no different for you. Uh, did that, it, it, I suppose, change your fascination with the human body or, or take it, uh, to a deeper level? Yeah, um, I, th- I think seeing so. that firsthand. Yeah, I think so. So my my grandfather had a, a nasty form of cancer when I was very small, um, and I do remember, you know, being really interested in what was going on for him, um, and being equally, you know, I was like eight years old at this point, mm. being equally frustrated that I couldn't fix it or nobody could fix it, and he was in a, a clinical trial uh, during his illness, uh, and I was just like, oh my gosh, I was so enthralled by the fact that his contribution could save someone else's life. I thought that was amazing. And then my, my mother has also had a number of medical problems over her life. Um, and I think watching the way she has navigated and been treated by the, the healthcare system, by people and also just by the, the system, the bureaucracy of the system itself, is something that has absolutely coloured my desire to provide high quality healthcare to patients. Yeah. Um, that's, those are two things I think are really important to me. Yeah. On a very sort of, dare I say, childish level though. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I remember absolutely. when I was a kid, even now, like mm. I don't love the sight of blood. <laughs> I don't like to contemplate mortality too much. Yeah. I mean, you were a bit different to some of the other kids. Oh yeah. I mean, you're like, wow, I can see a bone sticking out. Yeah, or yeah, I can, yeah. You know, blood. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, nothing's changed. Were you a weird kid, Nikki? <laughs> Sounds like it. <laughs> I think I was precocious. I think that's that that was the thing that really set me apart from my peers is that I was really insistent that I was going to start my career planning from eight years old. Yeah. <laughs> Just, I don't know. Coming in off the long run there. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that, that was what set me apart. Um, just really, really into knowledge and learning. Yeah. Mm. And yet, as I mentioned at the start there, through your teens, there were a couple of flirtations with some <laughs> other career paths, weren't there? Musical theatre. Musical theatre. Of all things yeah, was, um, yeah. was something that you were quite into. Yeah. I think I just, So different. So different, right. But I think I was just a teenager. And you know when you're a teenager, you just – you do some like crazy things. And, and I think I just didn't really remember or register that I really enjoyed learning. And I just mm. wanted to be, you know, one of the cool kids, but yeah, I went through law, journalism, accounting, um, music, musical theater and musical theater was when I was in year 12, that was what I was actually going to do. My yeah. dad was 
not happy at all because <laughs> he's an engineer, so incredibly sensible. Um, thought he was going to be, you know, supporting a starving, you know, Broadway actor. Yeah, <laughs> for the rest. Of That's his a very life. real concern, I it imagine. Is, I think so. <laughs> Let's be honest. Like it's, it's you know, possible. Um, so yeah, so I he was the one who kind of told me that I needed to go and get a real degree. So that's when I was going to be an accountant. Um, Again, it's so different. So different. But I was good at it. I was good at... Good at numbers. Good at numbers, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> and so at what point did uh, did you gravitate back towards this idea of being a doctor? Yeah, so I, I had uh, finished year 12. Um, I actually ended up in hospital around my TE. I had... Um, a viral infection. And I, I do wonder if that, that was kind of an, an impetus. Um, so I wound up in hospital for a few days. I missed some of my TEE. Um, and at that time I was, uh, I got accepted to accounting and I remember thinking, I don't actually like it. I might be okay at it, but I don't like it. It's not for me. Yeah. Uh, and I, I said to my dad, I, I don't want to do this. Um, and we set about trying to work out what I was going to do. Uh, and I went through, you know, in those days you get all the brochures from the various unis and you have the course descriptions and we had them spread out over the kitchen table and I, I kept flicking past uh, medicine. And every time I flicked past it, I'd think, oh, that, that's, that sounds quite good. Um, but I had kind of underperformed at school. I didn't think I was bright enough um, and I'd, you know, put in the amount of work I thought someone who's not so bright would put in. Um, and uh, I thought I'd just completely ruined my chances. And my dad was getting tired, <laughs> I'm sure, of the, de the terrible decision-making that was going on and took all the brochures away and said, if you could do anything in the world, anything at all, regardless of marks or subjects, whatever, what would you do? And I said straight away, I want to be a doctor. And I was devastated. I thought I had ruined my chances mm. um, by being a teenager. <laughs> It happens. <laughs> it happens to the best of us. <laughs> um, but then I, um, I'm quite stubborn and I thought, no, I'm going to do this. This is what I want to do. Um, and I set about working out how I was going to get into medicine because by that stage, this was the first year that they had offered um, a different pathway into medicine. It, was, it used to be based on just getting, you know, mm. 510, which was the highest mark you can get in those days in your TE. Uh, and they'd move from basing it just on your TE score to an interview and all these other things, and I had missed that. So I studied science for a year. Um, I did all of these things that I thought I wasn't smart enough to do. I did them at uni, and I did them really well. I, I studied chemistry and physics and maths, and and uh, I applied, and I got into medicine at UWA as a non-school leaver applicant. Mm. Um, yeah. There you go. Yeah, crazy. <laughs> and now the story begins. And then it kicks off. <laughs> And on that note, let's take a break and we'll get into that uh, part of your, uh, it feels like we're about to launch into the, <laughs> into the great unknown. Uh, we'll get into that right after we take a break. This is Inspiring Stories. Dr. Nikki Stamp is our special guest. Back with more in a moment. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Heart surgeon Dr. Nikki Stamp is our special guest who has got a new book uh, about to hit the shelves. It's called Scrubbed, which uh, tells a very personal uh, account of uh, her life, particularly her professional life uh, and all the challenges that came uh, her way over many years. Uh, Nikki, we're at the stage now where you've just gained entry mm -hmm. uh, into the, the profession that 
or the the study field that you'd uh, so desperately wanted to be in. What was it like at the start? Was it living up to your expectations? Um, oh, then some. And then some? Yeah, yeah, then some. I loved it. I could not get enough of med school. I had the best time. I, I loved learning. I loved the environment. I loved you know, going out and meeting other, meeting doctors, like real doctors and patients. Um, I loved my classmates. I thought it was the best thing ever. I was totally in my element from the get-go. I was, you know, sure this was where I was meant to be. And, and it, it kind of flowed like that. And I went from being a pretty average student to being someone who was really excelling. I found my niche, I think. Mm. I remember, you know, from my days at uni, I was never smart enough or dedicated <laughs> enough to do anything as serious as, as, as medicine. <laughs> but you guys were always the nerdy kids on, oh, yeah. on campus. And yet from what I took from the book, you were almost a, a nerd amongst the nerds. <laughs> Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's fair. But I don't think I was the only one like that. I, I look at my year group and particularly my friendship group and I had some really bright, dedicated friends who have gone on to become very bright, dedicated and exceptional doctors. Um, so I, did, I didn't feel that out of place. Um, mm. I felt like I was amongst people who kind of, you know, got it. I mean, don't get me wrong, we had fun too. Like we enjoyed ourselves and we were uni students and, you know, we'd go and have a beer at the ref at UWA and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, I think that, yeah, it felt like a place, yeah, where you could just be as big a nerd as you wanted. Yeah. In fact, it was encouraged. It was, it was, it was encouraged. And I think, you know, there, there is this sort of importance that uh, the, some of the things that you learn at that point could go on to make a difference to someone else yep. down the track. Yep. Um, and yeah, I, I think for me, that was something that was certainly in the back of my mind at least. Yeah. Were you somewhat aware at that point in the early years of, of uni of what sort of challenges would face you in the workplace or were you still that wide-eyed kid just looking to to absorb as much as you could and, and see and, and do as much as you as you could. Did you have any idea of what was ahead of you? No, not really. I think I was really naive. I think I was really naive even up until becoming a junior doctor. I, I sort of joke that I've, I've still got my ID badge from when I was an intern um, and I'm so like bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. You can sort of see the kind of you know, desire to save the world just in that photo. And then a few years later, the photos get a bit more kind of grim. <laughs> <laughs> Looking more and more like a mugshot. Right. Um, but yeah, no, I definitely, I definitely thought, um, I guess we didn't know. We weren't sort of told that there are a ton of challenges. The only challenge you see at that stage, and I think this sort of happens earlier on, I think this happens to, to you in high school, you know, you're told that exams and academia and, you know, meeting those challenges are the most important and only challenges you need to concern yourself with. Mm. We don't really do a good job at med school of kind of preparing you, or we didn't, I should say. I think things have definitely changed. But we we weren't prepared for a lot of the other difficulties, the other challenges, the realities, even just the logistics of what happens after you finish medical school, yep. um, you know, that your training sort of only just begins in some ways after you finish medical school. Becoming a specialist is really difficult. Um, it's a long road. All those kinds of things. We, you just didn't, they just weren't talked about or told. And, yeah. and I don't know if it was because they were potentially uncomfortable conversations that people didn't want to have um, or whether or not we were just, yeah, just maybe they were spoken about implicitly and we were just too blissfully ignorant of mm. it. Yeah. 
one of the things I think you lay out really well in the, in the book is just uh, after the years of study, mm. it, it just keeps on going. <laughs> You've got all these stages to get through and, um, you know, uh, phases mm-hmm. that you must do before you even get the choice of sure. of specialising. Mm-hmm. Um, we probably don't have time to go through all of those, but <laughs> I, I suppose it does give you a good taste of yeah. of the different things you could possibly do yeah. uh, within the profession. Yeah, yeah. Tell us, uh, just fast forward, to how did you arrive then at cardiothoracics? Of, okay. of all the options in front <laughs> of you, how did you arrive there? By accident. Uh, so I, I knew I always wanted to be a surgeon. I think even from first year medical school, I was always that girl who wants to be a surgeon. And and why was that? Was there a special kudos that went with that? Or was it just something that appealed to you, the idea of digging into someone with a scalpel? (laughs) I think there could be a little (laughs) bit of reputational stuff. Like it's, it's kind of revered in, you know, to be a surgeon. Mm. I'm sure that wasn't conscious, but possibly subconsciously for sure. Um, but for me, sort of, two, well, I guess two or three things. The first thing was that I love anatomy. I love knowing how things are put together, how to take them apart, how to put them back together. Handy in my line of work. Um, but then it was also um, about this, this sort of immediacy of surgery. So if you have a problem and you have an operation, I mean, there's obviously a recovery, but that problem is is gone. It's fixed. Mm. Um, and I, I really liked that rather than kind of, you know, slowly chipping away at a problem over a period of weeks, months or longer. So that really appealed to me. Um, and I think my experience with my mum, who's had a lot of surgeries, I loved like those two things that, you know, that were applied, I suppose, to her. So I think those were the things. I was actually going to be an orthopedic surgeon. That's what I was desperately um, keen on doing uh, up until I got uh, given a rotation when I Which was... is more sort of bone related. Right. right yeah. yeah. It's bone and joint doctor. So, yeah. so I, um, I had, uh, had given, been given this rotation because we rotate pretty regularly through different specialties to get a bit better experience, to get a better idea of what you might like to do. Um, and I got given a rotation in cardiothoracic surgery and mm. I was not impressed. I was at that point was no, not on your radar. Not at all. Um, right. I was pretty jacked off actually. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I don't want to do this. I just want to be an orthopedic surgeon. Just let me go to orthopedic surgery. And I, I turned up on the ward in the first day and sort of said, I'm just passing through. I'm going to be an orthopedic surgeon. And then sort of little by little, I had this this sort of realisation, you know, when you, you realise that you're wrong, <laughs> and there's that sort of uncomfortable feeling that you may have misjudged something and yep. you think, mm, made a made a mistake there. And that's what happened. And I, I never left. There, there was this magic moment in the, in the book for me, and I don't want to give too much away, but mm-hmm. uh, the light bulb moment, so if, I'm, if my mm-hmm. interpretation is right here, was a, a gentleman that you'd um, performed an operation on. Mm-hmm. And he said to you along the lines of, I apologise if I'm misquoting no, here, but um, you've got no idea how good it feels to breathe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a guy we'd done, a, I'd assisted with a, a lung transplant on. And I mean, it kind of ticked all the boxes for things that I loved about yep. being a doctor. You took someone who had a terrible problem, you did mm. this operation. And again, there's that immediacy of, of your result. Um, and to make such a profound change to someone's life like that, huge. I mean, you can't top that. No. And I imagine when you're, you're tired and you're doing brutal hours mm-hmm. and you've got this immense pressure on your moments like that, they're almost like a drug. Oh, they still are. Yeah. They still are. I, I, I still have a collection of thank you cards and, you know, photos and stuff like that with patients that they are like a drug. Um, yeah. They make me feel really good about 
not just what I do, but what we as a profession do. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, very proud even in some of the, the less shiny moments to have been yeah. and to be a part of that. And so do you have to almost be addicted to that drug, to that feeling yeah. to get through it? I think so. Well, I'm, I'm going to actually, I'm going to say I think so, but I, I certainly now look back on that kind of unwavering, uncompromising obsession with, with surgery uh, and sort of look at it with a different light, with a different light and different, different eyes and, and with the, you know, experience that I've had. Uh, and I'm not sure that it's necessarily 100% correct. I think that you still need to maintain some perspective on how what you what you do fits into other people's world, um, how it fits into medicine as a whole, how it fits into society, but also how it fits into your life. Because um, I think one of the things that we are encouraged to do is to give everything and then some mm. <laughs> to this mm. job. Um, you know, people have seen TV shows, you know, I'm sure you kind of get it. There is a... a kernel of truth in that. Um, and I'm not sure how healthy that is, particularly over the long run. Um, I think you need to be really, really into what you're doing because mm. you, you can't make those sacrifices and work that hard unless you really, really love what you're doing. However, I think that by just sacrificing yourself wholly, I think it makes you a worse doctor in the long run and it certainly makes you a worse person. Mm. That's for sure. So just to be clear, it is nothing like Grey's Anatomy. Sadly or similar not. shows. No, no, I've been looking around for McDreamy and <laughs> I haven't found him. Where? <laughs> Did you get into those shows though as a kid? Was that part of the the lure? No, never. Never. You know, I never. I never watched. So ER was the show that was on yep. when I was, was I in high school. That was or? that was a young George Clooney. Then, young George it? Clooney. Yeah. Yes, yes. Before he became. What did he become? Batman and oh, what else has he done? Of all kinds of things. Yeah. Ocean's Eleven. Yeah. But yeah, so um, that was on, but I never really watched it. I watched a few episodes um, uh, when I was at uni. Uh, and then um, then there was Grey's Anatomy. Can't yeah. stand Grey's Anatomy. Right. Which I uh, I don't know. Because it's so it. far from reality. It's so far-fetched. It just annoys you. It really annoys me. The best medical show uh, is Scrubs by yeah. a long shot. Yeah. And you know, even though it's kind of fantastical, the issues that they deal with both both for the patients and for the staff, really great satirical takes on reality. Yeah. Um, yeah. They touch on some really difficult topics and they do it really well. So Elliot in Scrubs is... Love Elliot. Yeah. She's yeah, your she, poster girl. She's my spirit animal. <laughs> Very good. Um, <laughs> after the break, I want to get you to, to, to tell us, uh, if you don't mind, some of the the challenges you faced uh, in the workplace for all of those magic moments, uh, saving someone's life or making a real difference uh, in their life. There were some darker moments, uh, unfortunately, that went with it. Uh, I'll get you to talk about uh, those in more detail right after we take a break. Dr. Nikki Stamp is our special guest in this episode of Inspiring Stories. Back with more after this. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Tim McMillan is my name. My special guest in this episode is Dr. Nikki Stamp. Um, Nikki, we're sort of glossing over what was an extraordinary long period and a challenging period to get from graduate of medical school through to becoming a surgeon. Mm -hmm. But in short, can you just 
walk us through the very many stages that you have to go through, the hoops you have to jump through just to qualify Okay. as a surgeon? So whatever you do in medicine, whether it be a surgeon or a neurologist or radiologist, um, even general practice is a specialty. Um, you have to do postgraduate training. And on average, that'll take most people around 10 years. So on top of, say, four to six years of medical school, possibly more, um, then you have another 10 years. Um, so you go from being a medical student, you become an intern for a year, um, which is like a, you know, supervised kind of practice. And then you start to stream into your chosen specialty. Uh, you do a training program, which is administered by what's called the Royal Colleges. So they are our, our professional training accreditation bodies as a ton of exams, um, a lot of study, uh, a lot of on-calls and extra shifts and, yeah, it's a really, really long time. And then usually at the end of that you take really big exams that will determine if you have met the required standard um, to be a, a whatever, so in my case a specialist cardiothoracic surgeon. Uh, and after that there's still more training to go. Um, there's usually like a period of, um, I suppose, settling into being a, an independent specialist uh, and then there's more training after that. We still, I'm still training. I'm still studying mm. now, um, you know, doing different things. And some of that uh, is of my own making, <laughs> but things change all the time. So we're always, always studying, always learning. Yeah. It's a long time. It's, it seems never ending. Does it, does it need to be that arduous or is uh, some of it a little bit um, archaic and unnecessary now? That's a really good question. I think, yes, we do need to have... Uh, a robust uh, training system where people uh, meet uh, appropriate standards. I think, you know, I've been a patient and I certainly want that. Uh, I think some of the, the thought is that we move towards a more streamlined way of doing that, particularly so it doesn't take 10 years. Because largely across the country now, medicine has moved to become a postgraduate degree. So we're getting medical graduates who you know, my day, which was undergraduate medicine, who were in their sort of early mid-20s tops when they left medical school are now a bit older. Um, they have other things. They've had other careers. They have families. They, you know, have lives. Uh, so moving towards a model that will allow people to get through training a bit faster um, is, is something that's certainly being considered. Um, and that doesn't necessarily have to compromise on, uh, you know, the quality of specialists that we produce by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, it could, you know, improve that because we're attracting, you know, some really great people by doing, by changing the way we do things. But you do still have to meet a standard. And that standard in this country is really robust. And mm. we should be really buoyed by the fact that we have such good training for our, our doctors in this country. Yeah. We're really lucky that we have amazing medical care. Yeah. A again, without sort of giving too much away, you paint this picture in the book of, it almost seems like the sort of behaviour and attitude that, that that took place, you know, in a 1950s boarding school or, <laughs> you know, uh, the, the hazing that goes on, yes. I imagine, when you join the SAS or, you yes. know, you go into prison or something. Yeah. The rituals, you know, this just breaking someone down until yeah. they until they fall apart. It, mm -hmm. it seemed to be this accepted practice that, that went on mm -hmm. in there. Yeah. It's a, it, it's a culture. It is a culture that you have to prove your toughness. And I think, you know, comparing it to the SAS is, is might be a, you know, reasonable comparison. I, you know, I think many of us would understand that there is that degree for, for some, a profession like that, where they have to to prove that they are tough and ready and can handle anything, including being treated and exposed to, you know, the most austere environment possible. 
and that definitely still exists in medicine, um, even in 2022. Mm. Um, and, you know, yeah, that's that's the part of training that needs to go. Yeah. Um, you know, while we can, you know, logistically train our doctors to be just as good, you know, sooner with better procedures and so on and so forth, they will be even better if we treat them yeah. better. And you were very much in a minority being mm-hmm. a woman mm-hmm. in your mm-hmm. chosen field. Mm-hmm. How hard was that? It didn't dawn on me that there was anything wrong with that until a little bit later in my training uh, when I started to sort of notice that I was treated differently, that I was subjected to behaviours that my male colleagues would never uh, be subjected to and that, uh, you know, I used to think about some of the things that have been said to me over the years and imagine that if my dad was in the room when those things were said, they never would have been said mm. because, you know, you just don't speak to women like that. Mm. Um, and it, that didn't dawn on me until much later. Aside from that, that sort of a personal experience that I've had, you know, there is a lot of research that goes on now that really backs up the fact that in medicine, we treat people who are from different backgrounds, whether it be women or, you know, people of colour, we treat them more poorly mm. um, than we do, you know, our sort of standard imagined doctor. Mm. Um, and, you know, there are huge problems with that. There's huge problems for those people who are subjected to that kind of treatment. And there are huge problems to people as patients because we lose, you know, some of our best and brightest. Yeah through these kinds of behaviours. Yeah. If we can sort of, I don't know if it's, if it's possible at all, but uh, separating the, you know, the gender inequality, say, mm-hmm. out of it or the, you know, ethnic mm-hmm. inequality out mm-hmm. of it, um, seeing you perform though when you are at breaking point, that you can still actually do the job, mm-hmm. whether it's through fatigue or mm-hmm. whatever mm-hmm. other, you know, pressure they're exerting on you. Mm-hmm. Is that part of it necessary though? Because mm-hmm. when you, when you are kind of holding someone's life in your hand, you know, you're walking that fine line, yes. aren't you? Yes, yes. Uh, and and being able to do that when you have got just enormous weight on your shoulders, is that part of that process still necessary, do you think? Or can it be done in a uh, in a less brutal way? I think I think that is it is important to be able to perform under stress. And I had a, a great boss I used to work for, um, not a cardiac surgeon, who told me that, for example, uh, you need to be able to work under fatigue. You need to, mm. to be able to operate under fatigue because sometimes you might have been working all day, all night, uh, and an emergency comes through the door and you're it. And it doesn't matter if you you know you need a nap. You might you might be it. You might be the only chance that that person has. So you need to know and understand how you work and how your body works under that kind of fatigue. But he was also very insightful to say that's that shouldn't be the norm though. And very often it becomes the norm. Um, so I think that's, that's actually a very, the way he described that is a very good way of describing what we need. We still need people to be able to perform under pressure, but we don't need to make it worse yeah. than it actually yeah. needs to be. Um, and I think that, you know, we sometimes use that, I say we, the profession, we use that kind of, we're just trying to make you better because um, you need to be able to operate under, you know, really difficult circumstances as an excuse for yep. really poor behaviours. Yep. Um, because, yeah, you, you do need to be able to operate when you're tired, but do you really need to learn how to operate when you're being sworn at and berated? And, and belittled. 100%. Yep. Tell me what the bonus of that is. Mm. I, yep. I can't think of a good explanation. No. Um, no, I wasn't seeking to, no, to no, excuse it in any way. <laughs> I just wondered if, you know, if there was yeah. still an argument for, yeah. for yeah. putting, um, you know, the up-and-coming, still-training sure. surgeons 
um, through their paces and getting them to still to do the job while they're, yeah. you know, they are fatigued and under stress. Mm. Um, again, in the book, you talk about a, a chapter in your life when you spent time in Sydney on mm-hmm. that long road to becoming mm-hmm. a surgeon as being particularly mm-hmm. tough. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk about the sort of toll mm. um, it takes on you just as a, as a human, you, you, your relationships, uh, mm. your friendships, you mm. know, the, the work-life balance that you have? Yeah. How the, tough is it? I mean, it was, Sydney was hard, which is weird because I, I sort of consider Sydney a bit like home now. <laughs> so I eventually came to love it. But um, when I first, when I first went there, so you, you have to sort of rotate through your training for, yep. for most people anyway, for no matter what you do. Um, so you move hospitals, sometimes you move states, sometimes you move countries. Uh, and s- most of the time that is not a choice that you make. The, those choices about where you go are made for you by a board, uh, a training board, a group of people who decide that, you know, this person needs to go here and there's a spot to fill here. So we'll send that person there. So being from, from WA, I had to go, uh, to the Eastern States. Uh, so I went to Sydney, which was, I don't know how I ended up there, but I did. Um, and it was hard because I didn't know anybody there. You know, I have, uh, friends, uh, I have family in, in, uh, other States, but not in New South Wales. So I wound up there by myself, uh, in the middle of King's Cross, <laughs> you know, like, you know, little Perth girl. <laughs> I'd only been to Sydney like twice in my life. I didn't even know my way around. Yeah. I barely knew anything. Um, and so there was that pressure, you know, I'd left everybody Mm. behind, uh, in Perth. I was by myself completely. And I, I'd sort of erroneously assumed that I would get there and make friends and, you know, people I work with and, and that just didn't happen. I was by myself. uh, I stayed by myself and I was working, you know, up to hundred hours a week in a job that was really, really difficult. Uh, and I think that was probably the time in my career when I started to wonder, is the juice worth the squeeze? Mm. Um, because it was a lot to give up. Yeah. It was yeah. really difficult. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, and you must have seen some incredible things. Have you got any sort of strong standout memories of, oh, you know, cases, people you treated, um, yeah. you know, some of the... So many. The I more mean, interesting ones. So many in Sydney. Um, you know, I, I worked there for a long time and I worked at many different hospitals when I was there and with some of the most fantastic surgeons uh, in busiest units and yeah. crazy busy hospitals. Um, the, probably the, you know, the times that I was there, the the cases that really touched me the most, and I won't go into too much detail because some of these are in the book. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I spent a long time working in the children's hospital there. Yeah. Um, and that was... That was sort of something I thought I would possibly end up doing, um, mm. which is then sub sub specialty training, um, and I thought I might want to be a paediatric heart surgeon, and I loved it. I loved the hospital there because people were just so lovely, and mm. it was happy, and everything was bright and colourful, which really was offset by the fact that I don't think I need to explain this too much to people, but you know, kids with heart defects, it's really heartbreaking, um, and it's really unfair. You know, I hate seeing I hate seeing animals sick, and I hate seeing kids sick, much more than I hate like you know handle adults being sick because it's so unfair. Like, what mm. did they do? Yeah. Like nothing. It's and it's really hard to explain to a, a you know tiny baby that why they're in pain. You can't you can't do that. But but I also you know part of that the flip side of that is some amazing saves. Um, you know, really being a part of you know some remarkable moments of people's yep. lives. But yeah. 
yeah, I, I, it was, it was a professionally and personally very challenging, but also enlightening and rewarding time. Yeah. One of the things I really enjoyed about the book, which perhaps I, I didn't uh, expect when I started reading it, was um, the sort of detail you'd go into okay. when describing <laughs> all the procedures and the equipment that you were using and what you were doing. Um, and what, like one of the things that I have had a fascination with for, for some years is, is organ donation. Mm. Um, and, you know, that part of your job sounded particularly um, enthralling. But I might get you to explain that right after we take a break. Because um, that sounds just, you know, if I can relate it back to mm-hmm. a TV show, you know, the clock's ticking, you know, you're <laughs> on a plane, you've got someone, you've got a donor, you've got a recipient, you've got to bring it all together. It sounded like this kind of orchestrated madness. Yeah. Um, really enjoyed it. I'll get you to tell that in more story, in more detail right after we take a break. This is Inspiring Stories. Dr. Nikki Stamp is our special guest. Back with more right after this. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Dr. Nikki Stamp uh, is my special guest. Uh, we're learning a lot about uh, the heart and lungs uh, and what a career looks like on the wards uh, as a surgeon, um, which is as close as <laughs> most of us will ever get. Um, Nikki, organ donation, mm-hmm. I'm fascinated by it. Mm-hmm. You were deeply involved in, mm-hmm. in, in going and retrieving organs mm-hmm. and then transplanting them into uh, a lucky recipient. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you can you give us a snapshot of what that's like? Uh, it's the best experience in the world. Nothing greater um, because it's such a special moment to be a part of. So I most of my career has been spent working in transplant uh, and uh, it was probably the thing that attracted me the most uh, to cardiothoracics to begin with. Um, but when, uh, when I was a registrar, a lot of my, my role was to go out and retrieve the organs. So Organ donation in Australia, you know, it's a really important topic. Um, Generally what happens is that someone will die in a very specific set of circumstances. And I won't go into too much detail because I could talk all day about this, Um, but the family will basically give permission for that person's organs to be donated to um, go to somebody else who is on a waiting list um, for whatever it is, kidneys, heart, lungs, liver, et cetera. So what happens is that a retrieval team of surgeons has to go out and do an operation on that donor to retrieve those organs. And then you bring them back to the recipient hospital, um, which is often two different hospitals, Um, often involves police cars and small planes, um, which I'm not a fan of. (laughs) Um, So I'm not sure how I wound up in that job. (laughs) Um, Didn't really think that through. Um, But yeah, I I was a part of that for for a long time. Uh, And it is is a remarkable experience. And like I I, I have probably had more involvement, um, particularly with the before and after care with with recipients, but that process of organ donation is so special. Mm. Um, it's so vitally important. Um, and every time, I don't think I can ever think of a time that I had been to perform a retrieval operation on someone where I hadn't stopped to think about what a remarkable thing that family was doing. Uh, and they are just you know, heroes mm. uh, above and beyond what someone like me could ever be. Um, so it, it is It is a really special, special thing to be a part of. But yeah. it's taxing, you know, because yeah. it's there's a lot going on. There's sometimes, you know, half a dozen organs that we're trying to 
you know, send around the country and coordinate flights and plan times and, um, you know, make sure that the recipients are well and the donor is well and, you know, provide pastoral care to that family, provide support to the recipients. Um, it is, you know, it's crazy, um, but it's it's fantastic. And and as well, literally making sure that there's enough ice in the esky to keep the organs Correct, cold. Correct, like yeah. It, you you actually <laughs> transport them in a regular esky, In an right? esky. So when I was a, 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 a transplant registrar in Sydney, um, you know, in a city hospital, you can sort of imagine, you know, there's a few people having a, a, a bad party or a good party, depending on how you look at it, outside the emergency department where we you know, leave and, and return to at the hospital on a Saturday night or a Friday night and you turn up with your esky mm. and I've had more than a few people be like, you got a beer in there for me, love? I'm like, if you touch this esky, I swear got a, to God. Got a liver, <laughs> you lungs. <laughs> if you come near this, I'll be adding yours to the table. No, yeah. But it was, um, yeah, it was, uh, it was, you know, a really cool experience. Yeah. The, can you describe the pressure though when the clock's ticking? Because you've got about four hours, right? right. Yeah. From retrieving an organ to putting it into the the recipient. Yeah. That, that, that's about right. About yeah, that four, four hours hour window. For a heart. Yeah. So after four hours, we certainly see that that um, transplanted heart really falls off. Yeah. And puts the recipient at risk. So yeah. So a lot of the you know planning the retrieval process is taking into account that four hours, and and certainly in Australia, and particularly in Western Australia. It is a logistical problem that, say, Europe or the United States don't have to face because there's so many of them kind of mm. closer together. But for us, it's really hard. And you're aware that you've, you've, you've got to crack on. There's no time for stuffing around. It's why, you know, we take jets. We have police escort from, you know, the hospital or the airport or wherever, you know, lights and sirens mm. and, and things like that. That does sound like a TV show now. I love the lights and sirens, I have to be honest. Not a fan of the little planes. Lights and sirens, though, love it. <laughs> um, one of the things that you do uh, more of nowadays mm -hmm. is talking to young people, trying to get them mm -hmm. uh, interested mm -hmm. in a career mm -hmm. in the medical profession. Mm -hmm. Given all the challenges and the, the horrible, outdated attitudes that you've had to encounter mm. over the years, how do you craft that message to young people so that you're not selling them something that's not actually real? Oh. At the same time, inspiring them. How do you balance all that? So I've had a lot of guilt yep. over uh, things that I have said in those kinds of situations in the past. I think that like a lot of my colleagues and like I certainly experienced coming through, uh, there was a lot of glossing over the difficulties, whether it be the practical difficulties or the culture and toxic workplaces and things like that. Um, I I have a lot of guilt that I certainly may not have given people an honest appraisal of what it's actually like. And I think that's not fair. I think that's not the right thing to do. So I've really struggled with how to <laughs> approach that, um, how to tell people what they, you know, my advice or, you know, things that I've learned. Um, and I've sort of come to the conclusion that you still need to inspire people to, to follow mm. um to follow in this pathway um, or any other difficult pathway for that matter. It doesn't just have to be about medicine. Uh, and to at the same time be honest but not too cynical, <laughs> but be honest and explain here are some of the difficulties. But after that, I see my role to be quite different is that if I'm going to tell people that there are a lot of wonderful things about this career, I have a responsibility to make sure that it's better for them so mm. when they arrive – Hopefully, 
uh, things are a lot better. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of how I sort of approach that problem now. Yeah. In your own uh, life, you've had to give up a lot mm-hmm. over the years, you know, personal relationships, mm-hmm. um, weddings, birthdays, Christmas days, you yep. name it, the list goes on and on and on. Yeah. Um, it has come with a, a personal toll mm-hmm. as well. Has it been worth it? Yes. Which I know sounds really strange because um, it's been a huge cost. Yeah. I don't think that list sort of no, touches the scratches side. the surface. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 been really hard, um, and uh, I don't regret anything. I know that uh, all of the experiences that I've had, whether they be good or bad, have um, have given me something. Uh, they've made me into the person I am. They've focused my attention on what really matters. Um, and certainly even in some of these things I've given up, like family and friends and time with them and relationships and all those kinds of things without understanding what sacrificing those things is like, I wouldn't understand how valuable they are to me. Um, so, you know, do I wish things had been different? Absolutely. But I, I definitely, I don't have any regret. Yep. So if the young Nikki was sitting in that audience mm-hmm. being addressed by someone who'd been through it and lived it, mm-hmm. you'd still do it? I'd say do it. I'd have some advice. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be like, so there's going to be this day when something bad happens. Just Don't prepare do- yourself yeah, for this. Right, exactly. Yeah, right. Exactly. No, no. Yeah. I, I, would, I would do it. I, I would hope though that if I was, you know, starting again that I would learn from some of my, my mistakes and the mistakes of people around me. Yeah. Well, congratulations uh, on the book. It's a fascinating read and all the best in your future endeavours, whatever they may be. (laughs) Appreciate you coming in and sharing your inspiring story with us here today. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Inspiring Stories here on 882 6PR. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. We look forward to you joining us next time as we unearth another inspiring story. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Sorry about the noise, my neighbour's sanding his deck. My motto, don't work on your deck, play on it. Life's good with a Trex deck, low maintenance with a 25-year residential warranty. Trex, the world's number one decking brand.